Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are this morning. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We are here only because you've allowed us to be here, guiding us by the Holy Spirit, guarding us from all kinds of dangers. Lord, as we dive into your word, open up our hearts so that we may see you with our hearts. Open up our eyes to see who you are and to see the reality of our limitations and your abounding grace. And would you be glorified this morning through our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So good morning, everyone, again. Um, it is truly great to be here this morning. It's always a pleasure and my privilege, honor for me to stand here once again to preach to you this morning with God's word. <clears throat> Do you guys know what it, feels like, uh, what it feels like to be a foreigner? I'm pretty sure many of you do. I myself know very well what it feels like to be a foreigner um, because I'm an immigrant for this place from the land of Far East Asia. I know somewhat very well of what it feels like. There's this one conversation I remember I had with a classmate in the very beginning of my life in America that was quite memorable for me because it really made me feel like a foreigner. I remember this conversation. One of my classmates was trying to talk to me, to get to know me, asking questions in the beginning of school, the first day of school, which, which was already a culture shock because where, where I came from, uh, Korean middle schools and elementary schools, we don't talk to each other in the beginning of, of school year. It's weird. So I was already wondering, oh, new, new environment. This is new. The super friendly classmate started to talk to me, very nice guy. I didn't speak English that well back then, obviously. So even more kudos to this guy. Kept asking me questions that I couldn't understand. So I kept saying, I don't know. I don't understand. I was getting more and more confused because I think he was getting more confused too because I think partially because I didn't have an accent. I said, I don't know. And I said, I don't understand. So to him, he was probably wondering why I don't understand. Maybe I should have spoken with the Korean accent, but my whole family spoke English except me. And uh, they trained me only in not having a Korean accent. I remember this traumatizing image still to this day. My sister's mouth saying, girls, not gar, girls. <laughs> Repeat after girls. I still remember that. So to this friend who was asking all these questions, I was responding with a fluent, I don't know. So he was getting more confused. Then he asked me this, where are you coming from? And I said, I know this one. I know this one. I said, I'm from Korea. And he said, oh, I, I meant uh, which was your previous class that you were coming from before this class. So I said, oh. And then we were all, hey. So now he understood that I'm from Korea. And then I think he wanted to make that um, that relationship better, he said, um, what sports do you like, he said. I said, I surely know this one. Literally, it was in my textbook of English class. So I said, my favorite sport is badminton. <laughs> and that's what he did too. He laughed at my face. He said, ah, that's a girl sports, man. That's what he said. <laughs> Many things wrong with that comment. Um, <laughs> But many things going through my head, I was thinking, how is that a girl's sports? Is there a different gender sports in America? 
where am I? Who am I? I was wondering everything. You know, I was less sexist than him. Well, he was trying to redeem the moment, I think. This steals all the awkwardness. He asked, what other sports do you like? So I said, you know what? Okay, I'm going to share what's the dearest to my heart. I said, ping pong. He laughed out loud, louder. Um, so you got to know this. In Korea, table tennis and badminton are fierce and prestigious sports. I was very good at it too. Still good at it. Such precision, such delicate execution of smash into that empty pocket. That's a form of art. How dare he? So still weird about the encounter, right? Uh, what was really weird was it, it, he wasn't really trying to offend me, but that obviously didn't make me feel at home at all. I felt like a foreigner. Such culture shock in so many ways. Not speaking the language is the obvious one, right? When you feel like you're not at home, not knowing the culture, not knowing the neighborhood, the weather difference. California was definitely a foreign place, beautiful place, and it was 60 degrees, I think, and people were wearing North Face jackets. The culture shock. I didn't feel at home. Today's passage actually dives pretty deeply into this notion of not feeling at home, being a foreigner. I would like to give you three points. God tells us through Ephesians 2 that we don't have a home. And second, but we do have a home. And third, we must trust in that home. First, we don't have a home. Second, we do have a home. And third, we should trust in that home. So first point, we don't have a home. The Bible tells us that we are all strangers and aliens. You read those words, strangers and aliens, in today's passage. The word strangers, in the original language, is called xenos, xeno. You heard that word, right? Meaning a stranger in a foreign land. The word aliens is a residential aliens who are not citizens of that country residing in that place. So what, that, what those mean is a foreigner, a person uh, who is away from home, belongs somewhere else, home. So I get to ask the question, what is a home then? What's a home? The dictionary.com says home is where you live. I, I knew that, but... There is a more connotation to that, right? When we say feeling like home, make yourself at home. This is my home. It carries a lot of, uh, it includes things such as like a sense of security, uh, a sense of belonging, a sense of joy and comfort, etc. All these things are associated when we say home. So to feel like a stranger, a foreigner, means that you're not feeling these things at that place. But why do we feel like we're not at home? And sometimes, even when we are at home, to feel like a foreigner. Why do we feel that way? Bible actually gives us a weird message to us, to this 2019 uh, generation. He says, you feel like a foreigner because you are a foreigner to this world. You are a foreigner Strangers and aliens because of sin. He says it's because of sin. Let me clarify that, because that could sound weird. A hometown. What's a hometown where you're born at, right? God actually gives us a deeper definition of our hometown, where our lives started, or where we actually belong, where we're from. We can see the beginning of the Bible for that, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It tells us that 
We were made in God. God made us, and we were made for God. Everything, in fact, it was made by God. Remember the first Westminster Shorter Catechism? What's the chief end of man? What's the main purpose of life? Is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the meaning of life. Our purpose in life is God. To worship Him, praise Him, to enjoy Him, and to be with Him. And all the creation, we just enjoy them through God. But what happened? Sad reality happened in the point of history. The beginning of history, that's what happened in Genesis 3. We left our home. This is what Ephesians 2, 12 tells us. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We, came, we became strangers to the covenants of promise. And because of that, we had no hope. We were without God in the world. Ryan Chapel says this, alienation from God and isolation from his promises and privileges, we were without hope and the comfort of God in this world of loneliness, trouble, and transition. Hebrews 11, 13 tells us, these all died in faith. Us, we, we died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. When Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 sinned against God, humanity turned against God. So they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. We were severed from the presence of God. We got kicked out from the dwelling place of God, our home. And there came misery. Curse came upon us. The pain of childbirth. You hear that from the curse of Genesis 3. Pain of childbirth. I'm very sorry, mothers. I can't help you. But what about what happened to the land? Cursed is the ground because of you. Chapter 3 says, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and all you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. Uh, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death came upon us, and deathly turmoil came upon us when we live life. What was meant to bring us joy, to work, to do the right things, to glorify God, we were made to do the works. And yet, now, we suffer for doing what we're supposed to do. What we love to do, we hate to do. Paul said that. We want to do what we shouldn't do. We don't want to do what we want to do. This very confused life is brought upon us by the curse of sin. There's the clear, sad further implications in the history. Instead of worshiping the Creator, therefore, we started to worship the creation. We started to idolize everything else. We make that our God. What was supposed to be delighted in the worship of God, we worship themselves. We call it idolatry. Now, just to be clear, to call something and to call something out and say it's because of sin, that's a very strong connotation that we must clarify, don't we? It's, it could be understood quite wrongly when you hear the sense of that con that sentence. Oh, those things are caused by your sin. It sounds like it's your fault. You did something wrong. It's actually um, 
the full effect of sin is just much greater than. The connotation of that statement is so small in the scale of what actually happened in reality and therefore quite inaccurate. Sin, the effect of sin is big, larger than life. In fact, it's large, a universal effect on this whole world. The point of whole history, it's horrible. So I shared about my experience of feeling like a foreigner. But it isn't just me who feels this way, right? Because of that effect of sin, it is only normal for all of us to feel out of place. Whatever we do, wherever we go, we actually ultimately don't feel too much at home. You don't need to go to another country to feel like you don't belong. You don't need to spend too much time thinking about your actual incidences, your experiences of feeling like, maybe I don't belong here. The feeling of insecurity. Everyone, I believe, uh, has experienced, most of us, I would say, have experienced a first day of school. That's a daunting, traumatic task for everybody who goes through that. First day of work, that's big. First day of church, even, unfortunately. Right? What's, worse that, what's worse is when it isn't your first day, isn't it? When it's actually been a few days, few months, few years into that community, that place, and to still feel like you don't belong. That feels horrible. You feel left out. Unfortunately, it's a quite often experience, very frequent experience in our lives. Now, when we're thinking about like not feeling at home, what about when we're at home? Do we feel safe? Do we feel belonging? That sense of feeling like I have no home uh, was a very familiar uh, feeling to me throughout my life because my family never stayed at one place for more than two years until um, I went to college. Last time I counted, I have moved for more than 23 times until I went to college, and then more moving, uh, a lot of moving. So this idea of hometown is a very foreign idea to me. Um, do you know what's weirder? What's worse is that on paper, my home is actually here, and when I say here, literally here, Lansdale, Pennsylvania. I was born in Lansdale. And I lived in Korea for all my life. So when I was in Korea, I always thought my hometown, Lansdale, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Where's that? When I came to America, I say Korea, where I grew up in. Never had that idea of I'm living at home. That question was very difficult to me when people say, where are you from? I almost said, I don't know. To be born here and on paper, uh, to be an American, but experientially to not feel at home, that was a feeling that I always had. Unfortunately, you guys didn't have to be me to feel that way, though. Even if you were born and raised somewhere, doesn't mean that that established home is pretty temporary, isn't it? As soon as you uh, feel like you have an established members of your household, your children, will likely leave, leave your home for college or something else, maybe forever, hopefully not. Um, your home is not safe from a true natural disaster. There's no real sense of permanent security, joy, and acceptance. I'm, I'm not trying to make all of us depressed. It's not my intention, although that's the message of the gospel. It's the necessary beginning of the message of the gospel. Where are we? Who are we? Who were we? We have no home. 
We have no sense of belonging. We are foreigners to this world because of sin. Everything we actually see, we hold on to, we try to find security in, they will fail us. Everything, in fact, ultimately will fail us. Our children will fail us. Our spouses will fail us, unfortunately. Our prestige, our job security, money, possession, nothing will succeed in providing an ultimate sense of security. Let's make it a little more bad. Uh, here are some other survey results that show how things aren't working out in life. A uh, recent survey says 69% of Americans said they were unhappy. Uh, another one says that more than half of Americans are dissatisfied with their jobs. 90% of teens are unhappy with their body shape. About half Americans report feeling lonely sometimes or always. A news article calls loneliness as a legitimate modern epidemic. What do these mean? It means that we're living in a sad, lonely world, a dissatisfied and scared world without a home. Perhaps the testimony of Solomon, King Solomon, sounds loudly, speaks loudly to issue. He literally had everything. As a man who actually possessed everything, fame, prestige, power, women, he had a lot of women. He said this, vanity of vanities. Nothing works, he says. Nothing ultimately satisfies us. Nothing carries on. Everything fails us because of sin, because we are alienated from the goodness of God. We are far from home. There is no home that works for us. So then, what's the message? That there's a hope? Is there really no home for us? When we find that none of what we seek in life is sufficient, when those are insufficient to bring ultimate joy, a true sense of security, belonging, satisfaction, what do we do? Praise God for the next point. Message of the Bible does not stop here. There is the message of the gospel. He says, you now have a home. How? To us foreigners, God himself provides us a home. That's the second point. In fact, that's what the emphatic beauty of the message of Ephesians, the whole book is talking about how God saves us, how God brings us in. Chapter 1 provides us with such beautiful message of God's plan for us even before the foundation of the world. Now chapter 2 talks, starts talking about just how God brings us such promised salvation to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Verses 1 and 2 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were lost in this world and dead in sin. And then verse 4 is the beautiful intervening message of the gospel. But God, but God, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Praise God. So then just how does Jesus provide us with such peace? That's Ephesians 2, verse 13 and 14. But now, in Christ Jesus... Who once were, who, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has 
broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. That's what Jesus did. He shed his blood on the cross and he became our peace. And he made us one with him and he broke down that wall. That wall that divided us from that nation, the kingdom of God, the household of God, he broke it down. He gave us access to it. The wall against God we built, he broke it down. Then through that, what does he give us? That access. That's verse 18, the previous passage. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This gave us the access to the throne room. So what are some implications of this access to God? Let's look at verse 19 now. Chapter 2, 19. Let me read it for us. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are not foreigners anymore. Not anymore. But we are fellow citizens. We're members of the household. First, we're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. What does it mean to be a citizen? Have you guys experienced that experience of not being a citizen of a nation and lived there? I'm assuming many of you haven't. Some of you have. Um, I haven't because I was born in Lansdale. When I went to Korea, they gave me a citizenship. So uh, when I go to Korea now, I have to serve in the army. <laughs> Praise God. But <laughs> if you have experienced it, you know how important your citizenship is. This is what a commentator says. In your own country, you could conduct business, seek medical attention, participate in government, have legal protections, and do not even think of the privileges. If you travel to another country now where you have no automatic rights, you worry about whether your medical insurance will apply or whether your currency will work or where, whether you will have legal rights if you get in trouble. You feel vulnerable, alone, and wary every day. Scripture teaches us that we're no longer this way. We don't have to feel that way. In fact, we are citizens of God's kingdom to this nation that he has built, he has created. Having citizenship in the ancient world also meant a lot of privileges and responsibilities. It applies the same to us. The commentator continues, we have the power and protection of heaven. We are treasured as any of the covenant people Countering the vulnerabilities we feel in our travel through this world, Paul says, we have the privileges of our heavenly citizenship to protect us. Amen. Now, Paul begins this analogy with the comparison between a foreigner and a citizen, right? But the picture doesn't stop at that grand scale. He narrows it closer and closer, and he says that we are not only citizens of a nation, we are members of a family, members of the household of God. You're a child of God. One of my high school friends, best friends, he didn't have a U.S. citizenship. And uh, we used to talk a lot about everything. You guys think guys don't talk. Guys talk a lot. We talked a lot. One of, these thing, one of the things that he extensively told me was the importance and the privileges of me being an American. He taught me a lot. He ranted a lot. He was saying, you could do all these things. I can't. You can have all these securities. I, I don't. He told me a lot. Just... He just never got to getting a citizenship. Last year, all of a sudden, I couldn't reach him on the phone. He, couldn't, he didn't return my calls. He wouldn't re uh, receive the message. 
I didn't know what was going on. And now I'm not sure if you can believe what I'm about to tell you right now. A few years ago, he met President Obama and became friends with him. And he personally granted him a US citizenship. Can you believe that? You shouldn't believe that, because that didn't happen. <laughs> I lied, sorry. Very recently, he texted me, he told me that he's serving in a Korean army. He forgot to tell me, Jeff. But how crazy would the story be if Obama, he met now former President Obama and he liked him so much that he gave him a citizenship? That would be a crazy story. But imagine this. That's a crazy story, but imagine if my friend actually met Obama and Obama adopted him as a child. Adopts him. And now, he, just imagine my friend, a Korean immigrant, sitting at the table of the Obama family, eating together. That's a crazy story, crazy picture, yet that's what happened to us even better. Why? Because God's better than Obama. <laughs> no offense to Obama. He did great things, but God adopts us, adopts you into his family, his table, to dine with him, to live with him, to enjoy his privileges as a child. That's crazy. So my question is, does your life reflect such status? Does your life reflect your citizenship of the kingdom of heaven? The privileges and the responsibilities that you hold on to. Do you feel like a child of the king of the world? Is your answer, I'm not actually sure? That's my response. I don't feel that way, right, every day. It's not easy to feel that way, to know and to actually hold on to the reality of my citizenship, of the kingdom of heaven. The fact that my father, the creator of the world, loves me, oftentimes, I forget. Oftentimes, I don't feel like I'm protected. Why is that? What do we do? If the Bible tells us that I'm the son of God, a citizen of his kingdom, then what do we do when we still feel like we're not at home yet? That's the third point. God tells us to be rest assured. He gives us some grounds for that. Let me read Ephesians 2.20. He says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This change of metaphor is abrupt to us, isn't it? From family to building, uh, the foundation and the cornerstone. But this is actually a beautiful development of Paul's thought. This is what Kamte says, members of God's family are literally referred to as the house ones. House ones, that's the language, or house people. So the word of household in Greek has the same root, the house. The word is complete, continuing to be there as aliens in the same verse, as four building terms found throughout Ephesians 2, 20 to 22. Built, building, built together, dwelling. That, that, those words have the word house. So we're hearing, the audience is hearing the word house and house and house. And the audience is wondering, how firm, how strong is the house? And God is saying very strong. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? Apostles indicate a limited number of specially recognized followers of Jesus who have been commissioned as apostles by their incarnate, resurrected Lord. Those specific people. 
And the prophets here most likely refer to the New Testament prophets. So what do apostles and prophets actually mean to us? It means the Word of God, the Scripture, the foundation of the household of God, the house of the dwelling place of God is built on nothing else but God's Word. Not just talking about the Bible itself, but what the message says. It's built on that. And it says, cornerstone is Jesus Christ. What is a cornerstone? We sang it, cornerstone. But have you seen a cornerstone in life? You know what a corner, not a cornerstone ministry, but a cornerstone. Have you seen it? It's called, it's called cornerstone. It's the foundation of a building that holds everything together back in the days. A commentator describes this as the most significant part of the foundation of the temple. This large stone bore much of the weight of the building and tied the walls firmly together. Just to give you a picture of what that actually looks like, in 1990s, archaeologists discovered five enormous stones that helped form the foundation of the Jerusalem temple. Here it is. The largest stone measures 55 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet wide, and is estimated to weigh 570 tons. That's a big rock. Right? When we ask, the house that we're in, is this going to fall? How safe is this place? God takes us to the basement of the house, showing us the foundation where we're grounded. That humongous cornerstone, that powerful, firm cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And the foundation is on the word of our Lord. Perfect, infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of God, the beautiful word of God. So turn to your house. You could trust in that house. Find refuge and feel safe. So where do you guys find hope? Where do you guys find comfort, safety, sense of joy? Is that founded on sand like Jesus describes? A house built on sand? Something that will fall? Built on something that is so fragile? ready to fall down? Or what kind of sand is it built on? Or is it the house built on the stone that Jesus says? Himself. Is it strongly rested on Jesus, safe in his word? The last point of the third point is that we can be rest assured with the promised destination, the purpose, the picture of the final picture. Ephesians 2, 21 to 22 says this, in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are build, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're growing. We're growing into a living temple of God, a dwelling place of God. That having full picture, your end game picture is so important, especially when you're living that procedure. And especially when you don't get to see the progress. You need to see with your eyes the full picture, right? That's why my fellow seminary classmate, he loves to lift heavy weights. He told me that on his wall, he has a poster of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime time. It's interesting. 
that he's doing that, but it works. Uh, he, Paul draws us these pictures for us. He's drawing the final picture where, where we're headed, the growing temple of God, expanding nation that takes over the world, a temple of God. There are two sides to this, to this message, corporate and individual applications. Corporately, we grow as one church, right? Verse 21 said, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The whole structure, it says, joining together. What does that mean? The joining, it's not just like blocks and blocks joining together. The word is used also in 2 Corinthians 11:2, where he speaks of a man and woman being joined together in marriage. It's a deep joining. Or another one is used with a sense of fitting together, such as the use of sutures to bind a wound. A powerful, strong joining. Paul may have chosen this word over the more common build to stress God's role of carefully fitting and joining each individual person into the building with a craftsman skill. This is what commentator says. The word also conveys a more intense sense of closeness and union. Joining together. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're meant to do. That's how we grow. Joining together. And then he says, temple. We're going in, growing into an image of temple. As people hear the gospel and put their faith in this message of truth, they become part of this living and dynamic spiritual temple. And it says, in the Lord, right? That is... It exists only in the corporate unity that Christ brings. It is this imagery of an amazing organism that is a temple, a live building, growing and growing and growing. That's who we are. Not just where we're at, but that's who we are. It's a very important corporate application is this. Are we growing? Is our church growing now, I'm, I'm not trying to promote a mega church theology. We must get bigger and bigger. But at the same time, this text does talk about the size, not just quality of it. The quality will be dealt much deeper in chapter 4 and beyond, but the size is being talked about here. Are we growing as a church? And it's not just idolizing the idea of growth. It's a necessary end game picture when we actually understand what's supposed to go on, right? We're founded on Jesus Christ. Let's flip it around. If our, think about the image. If your infant is fed well, sleeping well, protected well, actively moving well, the baby should not stay one foot tall. It should grow. If, it, if it's not, something's going on. It should grow. If our church is founded on a Savior, Jesus Christ himself, and if we are grounded firmly on his message, and if we're living that out in our lives, we are going to grow. We are going to reach other people in our lives that God has placed us near. When Jesus extends his grace, the grace in which we ourselves were saved by, when that grace touches our neighbors, when the Holy Spirit touches their soul, change their hardened hearts, and adopt them into his household, how will we not grow? The kingdom will expand. Let me go a step further in the application. In terms of this context of reaching out to people, 
I think we definitely get to ask this question to ourselves. How do you evangelize to people? Let's make it backtrack. How do you reach out to your neighbors with what grounds? What do you offer? Do you offer what we're actually founded on? Do you offer what we're all about, which is Jesus Christ? Do you offer Christ? Do you offer his saving works, his forgiving grace, his sanctifying power in our lives? Do you offer that? Do you show that in your lives? Or are we offering something else as something to expand on, to join on? Are we offering similarity, comfort in other things? Ethnicity, social class, interests? I don't know. What are we offering? We should offer the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And here, each individual is a very important part of this building. What are we now individually? We're bricks of this household, bricks of this house building, joined together in the temple of God. Someone put it this way. I think this beautiful. When our lives become painful or roll forward seemingly without purpose, we, by faith, must reaffirm the vital role each of us has in our God's building. Each person, as well as each generation, must embrace the vital role that we have to fulfill in God's building program. We are supporting one another, the body in which the living Spirit of God is at work to change the world. He prepares us to use us by filling us with the spirit of power to fulfill his calling for this generation. The sense of purpose is what will inspire us to fresh courage, faithfulness, and zeal when the world and even our colleagues may view what God calls us to do as small or meaningless. So I ask you, what's your role in this church? What's your function in this temple of God? in this joined forces together. The last verse tells us about the individual scope of this growth. Each of us grows into a dwelling place of God. Us, every one of us, being a dwelling place of God. Paul tells us this elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That also brings an application to us. How are you living your life individually, your daily lives? How are you living your life? Is the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? More importantly, do you see that when you have a genuine faith? Is that a holy place, God dwelling in you? Or the, the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is it harvesting well? Let me conclude with this conclusion. The peace of Jesus provides us a home when we don't have a home. We're foreigners. We're sinners. While we were dead in our trespasses, God saves us. God adopts us into his household of God where we are secure in Jesus and in his word and where we grow into his dwelling place, God's temple. Our home, our home, when we ask, where do we belong? Our home is the dwelling place of God. This might have been last week or two weeks ago. I was putting my kids to bed. I turned off the lights. 
I prayed for them. I kissed them goodnight. I felt good about the routine. Everything was perfect. And uh, just to provide you with more context, uh, it's been only very recently where they started to explore sleeping by themselves. And the journey hasn't been that successful. So this was a good day. Light off. I said, good night. I'm walking out. I said, today's a good day. And my daughter, Jean, said, Daddy, I'm scared. So I, told, I said, um, where, what are you scared of? At this time, I'm not thinking too much about the content of the conversation. I'm not thinking about her being fearful. <laughs> All I'm thinking about is the recent article I read about training kids to sleep on their own. <laughs> One of the tips told me to not engage too much of the conversation <laughs> because it'll engage their brain too much of what they're trying to talk about so they don't become hyper-engaged with their thoughts. So I'm trying to answer very minimally. So I didn't say, what are you I said, why? <laughs> why, Jean? She said, I'm scared if someone is going to come into our house. Why is she wondering that? But I asked uh, with the, obviously the best logical answer, right? Uh, I closed the door, Jean. I locked the door. This is an apartment complex. People don't do that. Uh, my, our windows are sealed. Don't worry. Uh, it probably won't happen. It's not a good message to your children. Just know that uh, that's not a gospel-centered message. It's not even a functional message. But I did say that. It won't happen, Jean. This is what she said. But I'm scared when you fall asleep and when you don't hear anything and when you don't hear someone opening the door and someone coming in and you don't know that that person's here. And I'm thinking, she's right. <laughs> what do I what do I do? I didn't say it. I didn't say it out loud. I, I'm, I'm panicking inside. I'm saying, that, what if that happens? Now if the fear is mine. I'm saying, okay. What? Then it hit me. I was trying to comfort her with a sense of probability, a likelihood of her being safe. That's not a source of safety. Just because of the unlikelihood of unfortunate events, that's not a nice source of security. That's not what our home should be about. Then it hit me. And as the thought progressed, in my mind, I spoke simultaneously to her. I'm saying it out loud. You're right, Jean. Sure, it probably won't happen, but that's not why we feel safe. We're safe because God is sovereign. It's the best excuse you always go to. <laughs> Remember God. But this is the true message. Because other things will fail us. You think window seal will protect us from an intentional evil? Thank God Gene's not here right now listening to this, but there are more evil things that could and that do happen very much in the world. We know that, right? But how do we sleep when we know such things are to be real? Because we know God is sovereign. Because there is the creator, the creator of the universe, the king of the kingdom of this world who gave us the citizenship, who provides us with the family membership. Now it's not just our kingdom. God lives with us. He protects us. We're founded in him. Our safety, our trust is in the perfection of God. I probably said something worse than what I said just now, but I said something like that. We at least got to repent of 
how we took for granted of all the safety and all the protection that God provided us with all throughout our lives. So, for us to feel safe isn't coming from self-deception, away from what happens in reality, the evil things, the dangers that come. Those things do happen. In fact, those things must happen because of our sin. The world is corrupted. It's not a safe place. But thanks be to God that God adopts us into his household, that he loves us, that he reached out to us, which, which point? To a point of his son's death, his son's sacrifice, the perfect sinless son to sacrifice for us and to live, rise, and to win, and to bring that triumph into our house so that we get to join in that glory. We are members of God's family. Where do you find hope? Where do you find a sense of security, joy, pleasure? Is God's dwelling place your home? Are you safe in that? Or are you calling somewhere else your home, saying, that's where I should belong. This is what brings me joy. This is what brings me pleasure, safety, a sense of belonging. This is my home. Is it built on sand? You know it's not true. You know that you feel unsafe, dissatisfied. Only in God you will truly find such house. Only in Jesus you will find true ground of confidence in the meaning of life. Only in the Holy Spirit you can find the strength and protection against the world. So God calls us to come home running. Our Father's arms are open wide. Praise Him. Let's pray.